Welcome to season two of your Social Anxiety Bestie, a podcast that shares the truth about what it's like to live with social anxiety disorder and celebrates the messy courage it takes to show up for our lives anyway. I'm Sadie, and I really like talking about social anxiety. I don't like having social anxiety, but I like to share what I've learned about overcoming it. Through this podcast, my Instagram account, and my Patreon, I'm committed to building a peer support community of social anxiety besties who give each other hope and help each other feel less alone. I really hope you enjoy today's episode and that it reminds you that it's okay to be scared and that you can do all the things while scared until they eventually stop being so scary. Hey bestie, in today's episode, you'll be meeting Russell Norris, who's the author of the memoir, Red Face, How I Learned to Live with Social Anxiety. This is an episode that I recorded during season one, when I didn't know that that was season one. Um, And then the break happened and I just didn't have a chance to air the episode. So I wanted to start this season with this as the first interview, because I really think there's so much value in here with everything that Russell talks about. So Russell has always struggled with social anxiety and in particular, erythrophobia, which is the fear of blushing. He's been a copywriter for 20 years and eventually became an exec at a big advertising agency in London. But the anxiety and blushing were always there, and he desperately tried to hide it all from everyone, until he wrote the book Red Face, released in April 2021, a memoir that opens up about his lifelong fear of blushing, and encourages fellow blushers to do the same. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's jump in. Russell, welcome to the show. Hello, Sadie. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Would you mind setting the stage a little bit for what the memoir is about and why you decided to write it? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's called Red Face, as I think you already mentioned. It's a, a book written from a memoir perspective, kind of looking back at my life as I grew up as a kid and as I went to school and went through my teens and into my early 20s. And how I dealt with chronic blushing, which is something that I've always struggled with personally throughout my life, which triggered a lot of social anxiety for me along the way. Um, And it was something that, you know, used to affect me pretty much every day, sometimes almost every hour of every day, sometimes every minute. Um, And it was something I never, ever spoke about to anyone, not, not my parents even until later in life or not some of my closest friends or family took me a long time to even speak to my doctor and the book for me is a way of kind of um, opening up about all the things I never said when I was younger and wish I had and also encouraging other people who are younger or even older I guess age has nothing to do with it really it's just about opening up and you know being honest with yourself about what you're going through and more importantly being honest with other people and letting them know what you're struggling with in secret because I find so many people who struggle with blushing do try and hide it they try and keep it secret from everyone and this this book was kind of my my contribution to trying to help people speak up about it because when when I was younger I remember looking for a book about blushing to help me and I never really found that book it didn't seem to exist so I kind of wanted to write that book and fill that gap so that that's that's the book and why I decided to to put it together. I love that it's called Red Face because I think a lot of people with social anxiety don't realize they have social anxiety or that social anxiety even exists. But I feel like a lot of people would know if they struggle with blushing, regardless of where that comes from or why. So if you see a book like 
red face, how I learned to live with social anxiety. I think that's a good way of, of catching people who need this information, but may not know what to call it. Yeah, that's it. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know there is a name for what they're going through a lot of the time, especially when they're, you know, maybe coming of age. But I, I wanted to get those two terms into the title, red face and also social anxiety, because for me, the two are kind of inexplicably linked. I talk a lot in the book about cyclical behaviours and how one thing feeds into another. And for me, you know, it's very hard to know what the trigger is or, or was, you know, did, the, did blushing make me feel socially anxious? Or did social anxiety lead me to blush? I've never figured it out, but I know the two form a vicious cycle and they feed into each other. Um, and for me, they're kind of like the, the two powers that I'm, I'm always struggling with. So I wanted those two terms to be in the title, to be clear. It's, it's for and about both. It, it's about blushing, um, but also about social anxiety on a, on a deeper level. We, we looked for lots of different titles, actually. We had lots of oh. alternatives we were going to use, like... At one point, my publisher suggested calling me the beetroot boy. Oh. <laughs> um, or uh, we had a title that said uh, blush like a boy. Um, oh. But eventually we settled with the term red face because it was it's, it's kind of a term I've been called in the past by people almost as a not in a you know really mean or negative way. But I've been called, oh, look, it's red face again. You know, once I start to blush or, you know, come on, red face, let's see if you can go even redder. It's kind of like a. A mocking term of endearment I guess and I, I wanted yeah. to get it get it into the title as well because it's a term I've heard you know used about me many times yeah no it's perfect I loved your memoir I loved every page and I've heard the same thing from book clubbers uh, you use the image of a closed door right at the beginning of the book and throughout the book and I would love to hear your thoughts on why that image came to mind and, and why you chose to keep it throughout the book I guess for me that image sticks out personally, because it's a, it's a literal and a figurative thing for me. There was one point in my early 20s when I developed a very specific fear about entering rooms. Mm. I hated walking through into a room full of people because I knew immediately I was going to turn bright red. And if I was already red at the time I was walking into the room, someone was going to comment on it or point it out. And all of a sudden, I'd be the center of attention. Uh, it always felt to me almost as though I was walking out onto a stage mm. or as though if you if you imagine like a stage with a whole audience there and someone kind of unexpectedly pushes you through the curtains and all of a sudden you're in the spotlight oh. yeah that's how I, that's how I used to feel and so I developed this fear of opening up doors to go into rooms with people on the other side particularly at work there's there's there was one place I worked where I just I, I really found it hard to go into another department to speak to other people because I always blushed as I entered the room and very often someone said something. So I'd kind of hover around the door and wouldn't go in or I'd find excuses to not open the door. So it felt like a real physical barrier, mm -hmm. um, but also that image of a lock, locked or closed door felt right because that's kind of how I've, I felt very often in a lot of different social situations where I felt like I couldn't really come through and be myself in front of other people. I always had to kind of hover on the outside, kind of tending to my my fears and never fully going in and you know embodying or embracing the people and the experiences they were having on the other side I always kind of felt like I was on the outside looking in mm. too afraid to go in and join in with everyone else so I guess that's why for me that kept coming up in the book as a recurring motif um, because it was such a physical thing not being able to walk through a door but also a mental barrier that I'd built up over such a long time yeah and I think that's such a great way to capture and 
visualize social anxiety because it has physical and mental and emotional components. And I like hearing the different ways that, that people, the different images people use for social anxiety. Like I, an image that I've always gravitated towards is, it's not so much an image, but feeling like other people have a social script that you just don't know the words to. But the, the image of a closed door and just, it's locked, it's closed, you're on the outside. It's just so poignant as an image. Yeah, and even, um, you know, a, a door has a handle, there's a way of going through it, but you're almost too too afraid to, mm. to try the handle even. Yeah. Um, so it just, yeah, it, it, it resonated with me. And it, it's, the, it's the image I start the book with, actually, me hovering outside a door and being too afraid to go in because it just seemed to sum everything up. Mm-hmm. For me. You also talk about, briefly, in a couple of spots, the differences between shyness and self-consciousness and introversion and social anxiety, or at least your experiences and interpretations of those words. What do you think of those words and how they apply to people with social anxiety maybe? Yeah, I mean, they they tend to blur a lot, these words and the way people use them. I find specifically they blur uh, when people use them who haven't experienced social anxiety. They tend mm-hmm. to kind of conflate it with introversion or mm-hmm. self-consciousness. I guess the distinction I would make is around the idea of irrational thoughts. You know, social anxiety and even uh, erythrophobia, which is the fear of blushing, which is something I've always struggled with. It's all based around an irrational thought, you know, an irrational fear. Uh, You know, walking into a room won't physically hurt you. And yet somehow your body responds as though you are going to be physically attacked if you go into that room. Mm. It's, It's irrational. It's an irrational fear. And yet the person experiencing it knows it's irrational, which is why it's so distressing, you know, you you know you shouldn't fear it, but for some reason you do on such a deep primal level. And it's it's very, you know, unsettling for you. It makes you constantly ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be like other people? Mm. Whereas if you're shy or self-conscious, I don't think there's anything irrational about that at all. I, I think there are moments when everyone is self-conscious or shy. These are the very rational behaviors in certain situations when you don't know anyone in a room, it's, it's very rational to feel shy because you, you've never met them before. And so you're a bit more apprehensive about coming forward and speaking. Or if you are suddenly you know, pushed out onto a stage and the spotlight is on you, it's, it's, it's a very rational response, I think, to, to feel self, self-conscious. But it, it's when you start to respond in very extreme ways to very everyday situations that things start to change. And then it, it's not shyness anymore. You know, if you, if you can't enter a room and you don't enter rooms because you're constantly afraid of what's on the other side, that's more than shyness. That, that's an irrational fear. And I equate that with social anxiety. You know, it's, it's an irrational apprehension about something that probably is not going to hurt you in the way your body is telling you it will. And yet somehow you still behave as though it's going to, you know, be a, a threat to your life. Something I talk about in the in the book is the fight or flight response, which I think probably comes up a lot mm-hmm. when people talk about blushing or social anxiety. But my my body has always gone into overdrive, uh, you know, into flight mode whenever it you know comes across a perceived threat. And for me, a perceived threat has always been uh, an uncomfortable situation with other people. And uncomfortable for me can just be speaking to another human being. Mm. <laughs> so that, that it, it starts to lean towards irrational behaviour. And I would say shyness and self-consciousness isn't irrational. Introversion gets thrown around a lot. We were just having a conversation earlier, Sadie, that at one point I I labeled myself an introvert because Mm. 
that felt like the trendy thing to do. Yeah. You know, I, I love Susan, the stuff that Susan Cain writes about introversion and her, her book, Quiet, you know, really kind of changed the narrative for a lot of people and made introversion better understood. But, you know, being an introvert does not mean being um, socially anxious. I think there is a, there's a definite line between the two. Mm-hmm. Even though socially anxious people tend to be introverts, it's much further along the, the spectrum, I would say, than introversion alone. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to explain these things to people because they're like, well, you're either an introvert or you're not. So yeah. what are you and can you explain it? And it, it's very difficult. And I think even you know, doctors and, and clinicians struggle sometimes to succinctly kind of explain the differences between these things. Yeah, I agree. Especially like it comes up in a lot of books related to social anxiety or shyness like what is shyness what is social anxiety I, I don't think I've ever read or heard anyone describe it as rational versus irrational fears and I really like that there is a rational level of self-consciousness that all humans would have we're social creatures yeah and I should caveat these are just my my thoughts yeah know. no I mean <laughs> I, that's what that's what's great about memoir you're sharing your thoughts and experiences we're not neither one of us is posing as the expert on social anxiety I'm not even an expert on my own social anxiety. I'm still learning things. That's it. And every person I've, I've met who, who struggles with this, you know, they all have a, a different story to tell, different experiences in, in different parts of the world, and it manifests in different ways. So I'm always very careful to not, you know, kind of impose my experience mm-hmm. on other people. Yeah, that's fair. This ties into a quote that I wanted to read out about the consequences of a poor social inter- social encounter. So it's if you guys are picking up the book and you want to find this quote, it's on page 65. And it says, it's no wonder that every poor social encounter makes someone with social anxiety disorder question their whole personality and every aspect of their lives, even though they know that people probably aren't assessing them half as much as they feel they are. I just immediately highlighted that one because it's so true that like just for me personally, and I, I would love to hear your your thoughts on, on that passage, but as I've been going through therapy and stuff like that and recovering, it's it's one thing to feel good in myself on my own, but then to have that in the field and test it out with a poor social interaction or what I perceive to be a poor social interaction, that's when the real test comes. And do I then question everything about everything in myself? interacting with other people I don't know if that made sense but it makes sense to me and it's kind of a three-part experience that that I go through and again I broke it down that way in the book and it's when I know I'm going to go into a stressful social encounter it it breaks down into before during and after Mm. Um, so before is the anxiety building the anticipation building of what is usually quite a simple straightforward event like a meeting at work Um, but in my mind I'm turning it into a big frightening event usually days in advance Mm. um so there's before the build-up there's during when you know sometimes it will go okay sometimes it won't go okay especially depending on how much focus is going to be on me or how how involved i am in that social encounter if i have to lead that encounter and it goes wrong and i end up going very red and splotchy afterwards i then kind of have a profound sense of disappointment in myself and i just spend a lot of time thinking over what everyone else must have thought about me Mm. and how that's going to color their opinion of me going forwards and how it might hold me back professionally or personally and it just goes on and on like that and then it made me fear the next encounter even if they were small things maybe not a meeting maybe it was just running into someone in the hallway what if the same thing happened and would they then go away and say god you know it's really 
really awkward speaking to Russell, isn't it? He just kind of turns red and sweaty and, you know, I don't really know what to say. They're probably not saying any of these things, but you, you think they are and you kind of beat yourself up over it. And I used to think like that a lot. I've, you know, I've, I feel like I've come a long way since then with trying to re kind of reflow my thought patterns mm. whenever I can. But I used to really go in those circles of, um, you know, questioning my entire personality and my, my whole existence after, after the smallest encounters with people. And it becomes something you can start obsessing over. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't find some methods to get around it. it, it it's comforting in the sense that social anxiety, it, it's maybe a unique experience for each person depending on their life, but it kind of affects you in predictable ways. I think that reading the book it helped me feel less alone and sort of reinforce the experiences I've gone through. And I think it would do that for listeners too, who would pick up the book and just say, oh my God, like I, I thought I thought it was just me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I was hoping to resonate with, with people on, on that level. Mm-hmm. Because I, again, you know, whenever I've picked up books, they'd never described it personally or from, from inside. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that's how it's always been to me. And the book in itself was helpful, you know, for me to sit down and think through these things like, you know, how does it break down? It's kind of like the anticipation mm-hmm. and then the moment and then kind of like the come down afterwards. Yeah. Even just thinking about how it how it functions and how it plays out each time and seeing those patterns has kind of helped me steer around them. Not all the time. Sometimes I'm mm-hmm. still learning. I'm always learning and growing, trying to get better. But yeah, the, the act of sitting down and thinking it through and trying to logically put it into a book helped me as well, because so much of the thought pattern is irrational. Mm. Like writing a book is quite a rational process. You have to try and get it down <laughs> into logical thoughts. So in a way, that helped me too. Okay, so we have some questions from some people in my Patreon book club. So we have a book clubber named Yvonne, and she has a few questions for you. And her first question is, I just wondered uh, about the depth of, in the depth of all he was experiencing or all you were experiencing and the level it got to, how did you manage to meet and maintain an intimate relationship? And did alcohol function as a buffer? Um, yeah, alcohol did feature and it, it's in the book. Um, I went through a phase in my, tw- well, probably for most of my twenties, um, where when things got really bad, I would, you know, drink obviously to cope in social situations, which is acceptable when you're out in the evening, for example, but then I fell into really bad habits of drinking before going to work to try and get through stressful days at work, which is a, you know, not a great downward spiral to go into. Um, but yeah, alcohol did play a feature in, in my life. And did it help me meet my my wife? I guess initially we met at work. So I kind of ran into her a few times at work and it, it was often during drinks after work. So I suppose that helped to smooth the initial meetings that we had the first few times we met and talked. Always helped that, you know, I'd had a few drinks already. Um, but how did I manage to meet and maintain an intimate relationship? I guess it's, it, it did take me a while, to be honest. I mean, I went to an all boys school growing up in the UK and I felt like that, that played its own part in making me kind of not very worldly or, or not very good with the opposite sex, you know, mm. when I left school. Um, and, you know, being, being prone to blushing and being so socially anxious, I did, to be honest, you know, f- for many years in my early twenties, find it hard to pluck up the courage to, to speak to women or to go on dates with women. And I only really had one girlfriend before I met my wife Mm. and we got together and, you know, the rest is history. We just went past our 10 year anniversary a couple of months ago. So we're we're 10 years in. Initially, I guess the answer is yes. In a social setting, alcohol 
was there and did help initially. I think my my wife has always kind of just she's known. I mean, I I've never made a big deal out of it, but she sees me blush and she's always known that I, I get red in situations. And you know, w- one of the things that's always helped me so massively is that to her it doesn't mean anything at all. Mm. It's never been even a subject to bring up for her. So you know, we we've always always clicked in that way. Um, and you know, when you find the one, you you found the one. You just you just know, right? It's so easy with that person that I don't even have to think about my my phobia anymore. It wasn't easy, I suppose, but it didn't stop it from happening. I did manage to meet the person I married, and I'm very grateful for that because I know it's not always the same story for other people. Different levels of social anxiety can stop you from doing things like meeting a partner, mm-hmm. having the job you truly desire, um, and it's just it's so painful to know that that's the truth for a lot of people out there. So I've, I feel very grateful. I, I did manage. It's helped hugely, obviously having an understanding partner, mm. even becoming a parent for me yeah. was a game changer. It just really refocused my priorities um, and almost gave me less time to be so frightened of, of social encounters and pushed me into them. I couldn't steer clear of a lot of them. There are endless kids parties and meeting up with other parents and it, in a way that almost felt like a bit of exposure therapy. It's been a big help to me being, being a husband and a dad. That actually ties nicely with one of Yvonne's other questions, which is about how how your your wife and family cope with your anxiety. And she worries that her son is displaying signs of social anxiety. And she's wondering, wondering how will how would you handle that as a, as a parent? Yeah, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Mm. Um, and I do find myself thinking about that a lot, about genetics and what gets passed on and how much of it is nature versus nurture. Um, And I do believe biologically, a lot of it for me was already there. You know, I just feel like my my body has always been hypersensitive. Mm. So I I feel like that kind of thing can get passed on. And I, for me, I'm just hyper aware. I'm going to be watching very closely to see if any kind of the symptoms that I would recognize start to come through when my, my kids get a bit older. Mine all began when I was about, 15, 15, Mm. 16 years old, kind of going through puberty and adolescence, all of a sudden my anxiety just kicked in with a bang. It it almost seemed like it happened overnight. Um, You know, I went from not blushing to blushing constantly Mm. around around the age of 15. So I feel like if it does happen with my kids, I'm going to, I'm going to notice the signs early, hopefully, and just, you know, really start that conversation early. If it, if it does happen for either of them, I mean, my, my kids are half Indian, so my wife is British Indian. Um, her parents are from, from India. So my, my kids tan up quite nicely in the summer, but I've noticed they also go red very quickly when they're hot and bothered. So that could be a sign that they're going to be blushers as well. I, I don't know. I guess time will tell. Mm-hmm. Well, I just I don't want to leave them to their own devices and let them develop their own insecurities around this. I want to bring it up as soon as mm-hmm. I can. If it does become a thing for them, it, it, it might not. But I, I think the thing is, a lot of parents don't know what it is. You, you can sometimes misinterpret it as, as other things. Like if kids don't want to go places or don't want to hang out with certain people, it, it can be interpreted as acting up sometimes or, or maybe as, as, as shyness. Um, and parents sometimes instinctively react against that and try and say, well, you know, you need to go out of this. You need to mm-hmm. go into the room or you need to, you know, speak up more to people. And it can have a counter, you know, counteractive effect, I think because you're misinterpreting what's really going on. There's something bigger at play underneath. So I'm just highly attuned to that. And I, I will be watching out for it, not just in my kids, in, in other people's kids as well. 
if it's there, I'd, I'd like to think I would see it possibly earlier than, you know, other people. That's basically how I'm approaching it as well with my kids, um, just with social anxiety. I think debriefing after social situations and understanding the thoughts that are coming up. Yeah, I, th I think I'd, I would just be on, on, on the alert, really. That, that, that's my approach. Um, and, you know, I've shown my kids my book. They don't understand it. They, my son can read, so he understands it's called Red Face. And we joke in my family that I'm always the first one to sunburn and I've often got a red face and it's, he's aware of something about redness and mm -hmm. red skin, but he doesn't really understand. But I think over time, hopefully he'll, he'll know it's, it was an issue for me when I was younger and I wrote a book and when he's the right age, I'll, I'll give him the book. To That's further, much further down the road, I think. Well, and, and in the meantime, you're normalizing having a red face or blushing or, or any of those things. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I went on, I actually, I went on TV and I did a, sh a short TV interview. About oh, wow. My, my, my kids saw me on TV and they saw themselves on TV. There was a photo of them, a, oh. photo, of me, a photo of me with them. And they got a big kick out of that too. So they, they're aware that it's, that I've spoken up about something, you know, over time, I think hopefully they'll, they'll come to understand it a bit better. But yeah, going on TV was one of the hardest things I ever did. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> I mean, Instagram Live is one thing, but going on TV and being interviewed. Yeah, it, it was very, very difficult. And I almost didn't go through with it. Uh, and I'll, I'll confess here and now on the podcast, that I, I, need, I needed some help from some beta blockers to, to do it. I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but, um, I, I did it. And I, I was really glad I did because that, it was on a national TV channel in the UK and it, it went out to a lot of people. And wow. All I heard afterwards from people was that they had never heard it really kind of publicly discussed like that mm. in a TV studio. So it, you know, broadcast, hopefully some solidarity for anyone who, who struggles. That's amazing. I didn't know that. I love that. Yeah, I didn't. I maybe didn't include that in some of our notes, but yeah. That's there was OK. No, that's, that's very interesting. When, when the book launched, it was earlier this year. Um, so, yeah, I, I can probably share the link with you. Yeah, actually, I could put that in the show notes and then we can watch it. Yeah, great. So Lindsay is wondering, okay, so just for context, in your book, you talk about sort of the gender differences and how blushing is interpreted and how blushing can tend to be more palatable in, in women or it's seen as more feminine, um, which, which you, we can talk about. But uh, Lindsay's question is sort of focused more on coping behaviors. And she's wondering if you have any thoughts on how your gender affected your experiences of anxiety in that sense and whether a woman would have been able to get away with some of the coping behaviors like excessive drinking without serious consequences. Yeah, so I, gender plays quite a big role in in blushing, I, I personally think, and, and even social anxiety, really, to, to a degree. Sadly, I don't think it should, but it, it does. Um, in terms of the, you know, the, the coping behavior of, of drinking, I think it often it's often associated more with men, you know, men turning to drink to hide from a problem mm. than it is with, with women. I, at least it is in the UK where I'm from. It's definitely seen as more of a male problem turning to alcohol rather than speaking to someone about your problem. I, I guess it goes much broader actually than, than social anxiety. It's, it's mental health in general. There are a lot of men in the UK who have a real alcohol problem and it's, it's partly because it's a cultural thing. You know, we're quite big drinkers in the UK anyway. Um, but with men, it becomes a real coping mechanism. It's a problem because it means that men use it as a crutch and they never really address what's going on underneath. And it's easier to mask it in a way because it's, it's almost expected of men. Like, oh, it's just men out drinking, you know, they, mm. 
it's what they tend to do men sometimes the only way men will only ever open up to each other is after they're drunk um and you know we'll say what they're truly feeling and then you know vehemently deny it the next day or, or go back to the male bravado yeah. afterwards of, of being closed off again so I, I don't know i mean what's it like for you sadie in, in canada is there a drinking culture is is it easier for a woman to get away with excessive drinking than for men because i I almost find in the UK, it's more, it's almost, you'd notice it more in a woman than you would in a man. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I definitely, since having kids, I don't go out much, so I can't speak too much about the culture currently. My perception, my, my instinct is that it's very similar, that, you know, guys go out drinking and tend to drink more in the in the situations that I've been in um, or can drink more and get away with it um, like a drink or two and I'm kind of done but I know that alcohol is a very common coping mechanism for social anxiety it came up in Ellen Hendrickson's book and just without getting into too many specifics in my upbringing alcohol has been a big feature of coping with mental health in my family mental health struggles I mean so yes I and also just me personally I feel like when I have a couple of drinks I feel normal quote unquote normal and yeah. that scares me because I'm like oh if I could just there were times when I've joked in the past and said if I could just have a pill that would give me the effects of intoxication without any like smelling like alcohol or without any side effects or any of those things I would take that pill um because it, it, it's the inhibitions lower and, and you feel quote unquote normal. Um, at least I do. So that's not exactly an answer to your question, but I would just say I relate. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's available to people of the, of drinking age. It's socially acceptable to that's drink, right. or at least it is, you know, to, to a certain degree. And it's, it's one of the most common routes people take to kind of, you know, try and escape from discomfort mm. you know, and to try and, escape from mental health problems um but i i just find on on, on my side of the atlantic um it just tends to be associated a lot more with men mm. and we have a big problem over here in, in the uk the number one cause of death for men under 40 is suicide wow which is staggering if you stop to think about it that's the number one killer of men um kind of in their prime is suicide and it's i can't help but think a lot of it has to do with problems never addressed and things hidden through drinking you know you can live a lifetime almost getting away with it through drinking and never really looking inside yourself and trying to address the deeper problem yeah and it, you know I'm always aware of I feel like I'm getting up on a soapbox when I start <laughs> things like that but I I just you know I kind of turned a corner in my life when I realized that I didn't want to escape anymore I wanted to walk towards things I was afraid of and accept my weakness and accept that it's part of myself and that I can't really escape from it. The only way to try and move beyond it is to accept it and allow for the fact that that's how I've been made. You know, I've been born and this is me. Yeah. Um, I just have to deal with the hand that, you know, the world has dealt me and genetics has dealt me and just move forward with it instead of always trying to, you know, retreat from it. 
similar to my experience and much much easier said than done I have yeah say. exactly much easier said than done and then yeah I also wanted to add for any listeners like if if, I'll, if you know if you have a couple of drinks to take the edge off uh, I definitely don't want to sound like that's always bad like I think avoiding all or nothing black and white thinking is very very important with anxiety and probably with anything oh yeah of course you know I mean I, I often have a drink to take the edge off yeah um, me too it's just that at one point in life, I was doing it before 9am in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a slippery slope there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, by, by no means am I speaking out against drinking. You know, no. I, I enjoy alcohol and, you know, different wines and beers. It's it, it's not a problem until it starts to interfere with your daily life. Yeah, you know? yeah, I agree. And now a quick break to tell you about the Social Anxiety Besties Club. If you would like to support the show and join a friendly, safe, peer support community that includes behind-the-scenes chats about this podcast and the other projects I'm working on, I would love for you to consider joining the Social Anxiety Besties Club on Patreon. It's $5 per month to join, and you get access to a private Facebook group where I do a weekly behind-the-scenes live stream, and we also meet up weekly on Zoom to hang out, chat about what we're struggling with, celebrate our successes, and just feel connected to other people who understand what it's like to feel scared or shy in the world. You can find out more at patreon.com slash your social anxiety bestie. I would love to see you there. Now back to the episode. Um, Okay, so one of Yvonne's other questions was, why didn't you explore therapy as an option? It seemed like you survived the horror of it all. But without the tools to navigate your way through, um, how do you cope with relapses if those do occur? Yeah, so with therapy, I, I've I've been aware, I suppose, later on in life, in my thirties and forties, that therapy like CBT ex- exists, um, and it's been mentioned to me by doctors. But I feel like there there might be some cultural differences here in the UK. At least twenty years ago, when I first went to my doctor. He was very quick to prescribe medication and, you know, not therapy. I mean, therapy never came up in the, in the conversation I had with him. He listened to my symptoms and he, he kind of said, you know, it sounded like it was in line with, with social anxiety and he prescribed me antidepressants. Hmm. And I went on a course of antidepressants as um, I was like 21 years old, I guess. And they were a really bad experience for me. I didn't enjoy the antidepressants. They made me feel like a, a different person almost like they were erasing my personality i had a really not a great reaction to those and it almost made me not want to go back to my doctor because i was afraid he was going to prescribe me something else that would make me feel worse right and i guess it made me feel like he didn't he hadn't really fully understood what i was trying to explain to him because it took a lot for me to pluck up the courage to go into a room and admit everything to him and i felt like i didn't want to do it again yeah. Um, and this was, I'm going to say again, it was like 20 years ago. I, I feel like 20 years ago, the narrative around mental health was a bit different. I feel like things have changed in the last 20 years where it's a lot more open and people are, it, it, it's a more visible um, conversation that's happening now. But 20 years ago, to me, as a young person in Britain, going into therapy was kind of seen as a negative something you did you know it was almost like going into rehab um or somewhere something that celebrities did or you know 
people who were I don't want to use the term mentally ill but that's how I used to think when I was in when I was a young young person it had a stigma attached and I wasn't really comfortable with going down that road and I I wanted to just try and get through it all on my own I, I now know looking back on it that wasn't the best choice but at the same time I never really had therapy offered to me by, by my doctor and you know when I went back to my doctor in future years a different different doctors each time they would often say well you know you, you can go for some therapy but you know it can also be based around your life choices like you've chosen a job where you have to present a lot at work and you know maybe if you chose a different job it wouldn't be such a problem for you and I at the time I just accepted that and I thought oh well maybe it is I've put myself in an unrealistic position for someone like myself and you know I remember a doctor saying to me if you really find that it starts to you know affect your daily life and it's a real problem and you can't go into work and you know it's having a hugely negative impact then come back and we'll talk about therapy and it never really reached that point for me I always managed to make myself go into work and get through it and it in a way it led me down paths of you know negative coping mechanisms but I could still get through the work day just about most days and I never went back to the doctor to talk about the therapy I almost felt like it was being discouraged mm. maybe that's changed now I think it has changed now I just think it's it's it might be as specific to the UK and the way things are handled over here uh, as you might know we have the NHS the National Health Service which is massively overburdened mm. um it can be, I think if you do want therapy, it can take months, if not years to get seen by somebody. Oh, wow. So it's not an instantaneous thing. Um, and it discourages a lot of people from even seeking it out in the first place. I think that to, to be eligible for therapy as well, you have to tick a lot of boxes. Um, for example, it, you know, sometimes you need to have attempted suicide to be eligible for, oh, for therapy. Wow. I think we just have a very different system over here. And it it led to me kind of just, not even going down that road and just um you know therapy never really played a big role in in me trying to to get through what what do I what I've been getting through for the last 20 odd years so that's that's kind of my answer as to why therapy didn't feature more in my story um I wish it had and I think now if I was an 18 19 20 year old now I would be pushing my doctor for therapy Mm. um but I, I didn't. And I think it, it possibly led to other problems. And, and that's maybe why it took me longer to get rid of some of my bad habits, like having a drink before going to work or, you know, exploring a lot of different drugs to try and get through my discomfort. Yeah. Um, but yeah, therapy didn't feature, sadly. And I, I kind of wish that it had earlier in life. It makes sense. I was curious about that as well. Um, so I was glad that the question was was asked by a book lover. Therapy has been one of the main sources of recovery for me. But it totally makes sense when you think about the timing and the cultural context and just like the, what you had access to and the stigmas associated with it and your experiences of going to the doctor. I mean, it's hard to advocate for yourself when, when you have social anxiety to begin with, I think. It's hard to know what the options are if you don't. It is. And it's very easy to back off and, and stop yeah. thing to, you know, to not continue trying to help yourself. Mm-hmm. When you first have those hurdles, you kind of, it's very easy for a socially anxious person to, to stop after that and to sit back and say, well, I tried, it didn't work. I'm just yeah. going to, I'm not going to go through that again. Um, I think a lot of people never even 
step forward in the first place to try and get help at all. There's a statistic in the UK that 10% of people suffer from social anxiety. And I, I think the reality is it could be higher. I think so too. Because no one comes forward to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not really given the seriousness, I think, that it needs from the medical community um, in, in the UK anyway, and, and blushing as well. It can be yeah. seen as, as quirky or cute, you know, and it's, it's not really seen as a serious problem that's going to hold you back in life. Whereas for so many people, it really is. And yeah. they'll never speak up about the extent that it does um, hurt them and hold them back. So, yeah, there's a problem there. And I hope we find a way through it. But I just feel like the, the whole um, discourse around mental health has been changing a lot in the last kind of decade. And I think it will get better as time goes on. And hopefully more people will speak up because there will be more, more resources available mm-hmm. to diagnose them correctly and treat them correctly and give them more you know, avenues they can go down. Yeah, I think so too. I think my, my, my I did my therapy in 2017 or 2018, so very, very recently. So I think I've benefited from all these changes and like normalizing therapy, at least in, in Canada, it seems that way. And I didn't have the years long waiting list that you described or the months. I mean, I guess there were months I had to wait for the next program to open up, but it was fairly accessible. I think normalizing is the word. That's the perfect word for it. I, I yeah. think in my in the last 20 years of my life, therapy was not a normalized thing. Yeah. It's becoming a normalized thing now. Um, I've always kind of been aware that therapy is more accepted in the US and, and Canada. I've always just heard more about it coming from, yeah. from, from that side of the Atlantic. But in the UK, I don't know. I think it's just taken longer for the stigma to disappear from it. Um, we're quite an uptight society, you know, the Brits. I was gonna, I was gonna say, is there like a stiff upper lip sort of culture? Yeah, that's the thing. That, I mean, it's the stereotype is often true. We, we can be quite uh, buttoned up and repressed in many ways. You know, not truly showing your real feelings or emotions mm. um, comes through in the way we're quite sarcastic and deflective with our sense of humor. It, it's a real cultural thing as well. And it's really interesting how that feeds into you know, the mental health debate in different countries. Yeah. Uh, it really is so affected by the society you live in. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to compare notes. Yeah, I'm finding it very interesting. It, I mean, it, the sarcasm and the, and, the, and the dry humor make for good TV. BBC TV is yeah. it's quite good. <laughs> good yeah, humor, good comedy. Yeah, it's definitely like the, the national psyche, you know, to kind of think that way. And we're, we're often very pessimistic. We expect the worst uh, mm. because the weather, for example, is always terrible here and we expect <laughs> the worst um, and we can be quite uh, negative in many ways. Mm. Uh, lots of complaining. We complain a lot. <laughs> but it's, it's hard sometimes to disentangle that from the real deeper problems that are there too. Yeah. I think it can get glossed over, especially when you speak to a doctor who comes from the same society and has the same kind of, you know, I guess, cultural biases um which affect the way you're diagnosed that's true wow before i read your book i've i've had lots of people reach out to me about blushing and struggling with blushing and i feel like my answer has sort of shortchanged them unintentionally because my experience of blushing i mean blushing has has been something i've been self-conscious about but it hasn't been uh, i guess debilitating in the way that it can be for some people 
and the answers I would give, like the advice I would give would, would be based on my experience, which is, which is fine. Um, but I didn't realize until I read your book and, and, and when I joined the I blush Facebook group, which I would recommend to any listeners as well, I didn't realize how extreme it could be and how hard it could be. Yeah, I'm part of the I plus group as well. And I, I, I only became part of it after the book came out. I wasn't aware of it mm. until a member of that group reached out and invited me to join. And, you know, I joined and there are thousands of members in there from all over the world. And they are all kind of, you know, so happy to find a space where they can talk about it and where yeah. they can they can f- be validated around other people who, you know, feel the same and go through the same angst that they do around the daily avoidance of blushing yeah um and it's it's amazing to know that space is there and since since my book came out i've had people you know from all over the world reaching out to me they, they find me through my publisher or, or online and a lot of the time it's men reaching out saying you know I, I didn't realize there were others who had it as bad as me and it's so great to to know that you know i can maybe come through the other side or you know start start looking at things a bit differently, um, even just knowing, you know, that they're not completely on their own and that it is mm-hmm. a thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's not something that should just be brushed under the carpet um, or something you need to man up and grow out of, you know, those, right. those kind of phrases. That, that response has been amazing. But yeah, the, the eye blush group, I recommend that to anyone because that's, that's a great place to meet, you know, fellow blushers mm-hmm. um, and anyone who's affected by this. It's a real, it's a great forum and support group. Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I said that already, but I'll put the link in the show notes for that Facebook group. You can find us there. I'm yeah. not very active. I, I, I lurk. Well, I actually think that's how I found your Instagram. Is channel. it? Oh, it through, like, through iBlush. Yeah. So that was kind of like the connector. Oh, that's interesting. Well. You talked a little bit at the beginning about what made you decide to write the book. But then there's also what I'd love to hear about is how did you decide to send an email, an unsolicited email to a publisher, as you said it at the end of the book? Uh, and what, what was it like writing it? What was it like? like publishing it and promoting it afterwards obviously we talked about going on tv but yeah yeah fill me in on anything you feel like sharing (laughs) okay okay so um i've always wanted to write a book i'm a writer by trade and i you know I, i write marketing copy i never write anything very personal and you know the piece of advice i've always heard again and again from writers and publishers is write what you know Mm. you know tell your story and I just felt like I did have a story to tell I, you know I hadn't read a, a book about blushing or a person who blushes from their own perspective and I felt you know I, I could maybe come out and write that book I, I knew it would mean kind of laying a lot of things bare and admitting a lot of things to to people uh, who I've never really told a lot of this stuff to you before you know friend, friends and even some family a lot of the stuff in the book was possibly things they were reading for the first time so it was quite a big decision to take but um I actually hadn't I hadn't written the book when I contacted the publisher um over here again I don't know I think it differs from country to country but in the UK if you want to get a book published you really need an agent and to get an agent you have to have written something already that you're shopping around and they decide to represent you and it can be very hard to get into the publishing space so I I didn't have great hopes for publishing a book without an agent and I didn't have an agent, but I did send an email to a publisher. And the reason I contacted that publisher was because they had recently published a book about OCD. Mm. Um, 
and it was a very personal, candid memoir style. It was written by um, a girl called Lily Bailey, who, who is based in the UK. It's called OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought. And I saw that book and I thought, wow, that, that's amazing. And I, I bought the book and read it and I, I looked up the publisher and I realised they were based really close to me. They were in the same area of South London. And so I just kind of took a, went out on a limb and I, I sent them an email and said, you know, I, I read your book from Lily Bailey on OCD, thought it was amazing. Uh, would you be interested in maybe telling a similar story about social anxiety and blushing? Mm. And you know, it, it, I, I fully expected that to kind of like go unanswered or go into their their um, spam box and I'd never hear back. But the owner of the company got back to me within a day and said, um, <sighs> can we have a chat? And we just had a phone call and he just said, could you just really briefly give me a bit of an elevator pitch? What you think the book would be? Um, and just tell me a bit about your struggles with blushing. And so we, we had a quick talk and he said, if you can write the first chapter so I can get a feel for your writing style, and where the book might go, um, then I'll, you know, I'll use that as a taster and let you know. So I quickly wrote chapter one um, and fired it off to him. And I guess it was about a week later, he wrote back and said, I really like it, let, let's write the book. Um, here's a wow. contract. Wow. <laughs> so, so it was, I, I think I got very lucky is the summary, I suppose, because normally that's not a very traditional route into getting a book published. Mm. I think it possibly helped that they're a smaller publisher and they were looking to expand their author list. Um, so it also helped that I had the publisher kind of on my case, making me deliver chapters because I'm, I'm not the fastest of writers. I'm a bit of a perfectionist and he, you know, publisher kept telling me you need to get the word count moving up and up and up. It, it's taking a bit too long. And it, it was good to have someone cracking the whip. Um, for me anyway and I got there eventually but it took a while I think all in all it took me about three years to write the book and it's it's not even really that long uh, yeah. it's about it's about 260 pages or so um, but it took me a long time to write it because I was fully employed at the, at the time it was before the pandemic I was still going into work every day mm. and I have two young kids who needed all my attention on the weekend yeah. so the only time I could really do it was traveling to and from work and I used to type it on a an iPad um, on on the train, and uh, you know, it was messy. I think writing is always messy. The the only time it starts to look and read well is after you've gone into edit mode. Mm. So it was kind of a bra a massive brain dump, and then my my publisher and editor helped me knock it into shape, um, and we published it just after. Well, actually, a year into COVID, I guess is when it came out. And we decided to include a chapter on COVID as well and working from home because yeah, it, yeah. it feeds in so directly to the topic. You know, I, I've, I have been feeling a lot more comfortable working from home. I, I don't know about yourself and others, but kind of meetings on Zoom for me have been a lot easier than meetings in person in a, in a boardroom somewhere. Yes. Um, and I've been enjoying it. But at the same time, I feel like I don't want to completely lose contact with going into an office space because uh, if I don't keep some level of contact with people in an office, I feel like I'm just going to start regressing. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like I need to practice and it's, it's like a muscle you flex. And if I don't flex it enough, I might start becoming a lot more anxious in social situations than, than, I, than I am at this point in life. Um, 
So yeah, that's a yeah. bit of a round, roundabout answer. Sorry, but no, that's that's <laughs> that's exactly how I think of it. Also, um, it's like a muscle you have to practice, and you can get you can get sort of out of shape and rusty socially. Um, and I also really enjoy working from home. I, that's why I originally chose freelance translation and editing um, before before babies and all that stuff. But I didn't know what I know now about social anxiety, so I didn't. I just went all into hermit mode <laughs> with no yeah. social contact, and that had some pretty unpleasant consequences and eventually led to actually getting diagnosed with social anxiety, but that's a whole other thing. I've seen, sorry, I, I was yeah. going to say, I've, I've seen that you set yourself daily challenges, you know, like the yeah. hat challenge and the wearing <laughs> mismatched shoes, which I think is great. It's such a lighthearted way to kind of, like you say, flex that muscle. It's true. Yeah. Make sure you're still, you know, pushing yourself gently. To move ahead. Gently is key. Gently is key. It was supposed to be a weekly thing, but then I realized that it's actually terrifying because I still have some social anxiety. So it became very exhausting and I've kind of fallen out of the habit. But once the kids are back in school, I, I want to encourage people to find these gentle challenges that they can set themselves that, that actually make sense for what their goals are. Yeah. And in a way, promoting the book, which is something else you mentioned, um, that for me has been a way of flexing the muscle too, because mm. I've actually found that side of things quite difficult. I if believe I'm that. Um, it, it's kind of hard to promote a book about social anxiety when you have social anxiety. Yep. <laughs> um, so going on TV obviously was the the hardest thing I've done to date. Um, but there's there have been some radio interviews, um, and I've I suppose the easier thing for me is to write some guest articles on blogs. I've done a few of those, hmm. but I I you know I still get uncomfortable in, in these situations, and it is very hard, you know, talking about yourself. Um, but that really is the the key to everything I, I've been finding for me. I, I I tried to hide it for so long and to pretend it wasn't who I really am, and it I think that contributed to a lot of my difficulties. Yes. So, so to open up and kind of lay everything bare, it, it makes me feel as though I don't have anything to hide anymore. Hmm. So there's less reason to be scared of it. Oh and yes. it's it's helped me to break that cycle that feeds into itself over and over and over. I'm now less scared of the situations because everyone knows I've told them it's a problem. I'm, I'm not hiding it. So they know in advance. So there's less anticipation and fear to build up beforehand. So for me, it's really helped. And one of the big things I'm trying or I'm hoping people take away from my book is that speaking up is really beneficial even though it feels like the absolute hardest thing to do and you feel like you will be judged and you feel like it's going to be impossible because that is the fear itself you know a socially anxious person does not want to walk into a room and tell people about their social anxiety yeah. <laughs> um but once you do it's amazing the weight that lifts yes absolutely um, and i just i i'm hoping the book can encourage other people to maybe consider doing it themselves even though I completely understand how gut-wrenching it, it can be to even think about doing that. Um, yes. I just hope some people take that message away from the book, because even though it's a bit dark in places, the book, I, I tried to make it positive. It's, it's supposed to send out a positive message. Um, and I hope that gets picked up. Yeah, wow. I, I could not have ended the episode <laughs> on a better note. That is... That was that was beautiful to listen to and it actually really helped clarify 
sort of the paradox that I find myself in of having social anxiety, but doing a social anxiety podcast and being socially anxious, but interviewing people with social anxiety, which my husband finds kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, there, um, there is a real paradox there. And a lot yeah. of people have been asking me that, you know, how, how is it promoting a book when it's one of your deep, deepest fears? Yeah. <laughs> But it's, I guess I, I give the same answer I just gave that, you know, actually doing that has helped to, to break that cycle and, and, yeah. and make it easier for me, even just by a bit. Because I don't think, I feel like it will never fully go away and it's baked into who I am. But I try and see the positives of that because I think it brings me some some plus points and, and benefits in life as well. Yeah. Well, wow. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So what are you up to these days? Are you going to write more books? And where can we find you and your publisher online? Uh, these days, I run my own copywriting business. I'm a freelancer. I, I'm based in London. So I have been doing most of that remotely from home. Um, I would love to write another book. I don't know what it would be around, it, if it would still be around this topic, maybe a sequel. Um, or, you know, I've always wanted to write a piece of fiction that could maybe happen in the future. Who knows? I haven't really got that far into planning what that might be yet. Um, but I'm I am online. I, I can be found on on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is beyond the blush. And I'm on Instagram as well, although I, I don't tend to promote the book as much on there. That's kind of me just being me on Instagram. Mm. Um, I'm there. You can find me at Rusty Chuck. And my book is published by Canbury Press, which is a, a smallish indie UK press. Um, and I think you're going to share a link, Sadie, in the notes to, yeah. to go straight there. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Huge thank you to Russell for that awesome conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And I wanted to add that if you look in the show notes, um, you'll see a link to Canbury Press's website that has a discount code. The code is Bestie, and that will get you a discount if you buy the book or the ebook of Red Face through them. So, huge thank you to Canbury Press for arranging that because I really think you guys would benefit from reading the book. So, come back next week. It'll be the last episode of 2021, and it'll be all about lessons and takeaways. Um, in 2021. And I'm going to share some of the takeaways that some of you have shared on Instagram. So I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to connect with me online, please come find me on Instagram at your social anxiety bestie. And it would mean the world to me if you shared this episode to your stories, or directly with someone who needs to be reminded that they aren't alone. Until next time, I want to remind you to show up scared because it's okay to be scared. Show up imperfect because messy courage is still courage. Just show up because that's how it gets easier. Just show up because that's how you get stronger. Just show up because I know you can do it. Just show up. I'll see you next time. Bye.